Thank you for tuning in to Works Cited, a podcast about poems. I'm Kevin Cotrere from Boston, Massachusetts, and I am joined by Luke Bauerlein from Phoenixville, PA. Hey, how's it going, Kevin? It's going great. How about yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Great. And uh, we're also joined by Luke Stromberg from Upper Darby, PA. Good to talk to you guys. Yeah, it's good to hear you, man. Uh, so we're going to, um, you know, in this first episode, I thought we would start off with, uh, just talking a little bit about, you know, our motivations for, for doing the podcast and really start off with kind of how we got into, to reading poems. Cause I, I just think that's, that's sort of, that's an interesting way to begin, sort of begin at the beginning. Uh, so yeah. I thought, um, Bauerline, uh, why, why don't you, you know, Tell us a little bit about, you know, why you're interested in poetry and, and where that started for you. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I grew up mostly in uh, the suburbs of uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, right outside of the Philadelphia area, um, maybe a little bit out out further than, than Stromberg, um, who's a little bit closer into the city. But, um, but you know, I come from um, a family where, you know, my dad was a, a journalist and a college professor, and my mom has been a peace activist for a long time. And there were just, there were a lot of um, artists in my family that I was introduced to at a, at a young age. And not necessarily people that made their living from it, um, like my dad did with his writing. Oh, but I had um, an aunt who was pursuing her master's in theater, and I had um, another aunt who was a singer-songwriter, and her husband helped her perform. And uh, I just had a lot of... Um, creativity in my family. And I felt like I was encouraged from a young age to embrace that part of myself. And so, um, I don't know, probably like a lot of kids, you're assigned to do some kind of creative writing projects in school. And um, I just remember writing in uh, in first grade, a poem, a, like a little exercise about um, about getting a spitball stuck in somebody's hair. And I, and I think because it was like kind of an unusual image that kind of like stuck with the teacher and I got a little praise for it. And, um, from then on, I was just kind of interested in, okay, like when you put words together, you can, uh, you can use them to, to impact people in kind of fun ways or you get recognized for it. And so that was always, um, something in my schooling that, um, I was intrigued with. And, um, yeah, as I, as I kind of got a little bit older, I got different accolades for things like that. And so by the time I was in high school, um, I had joined like the literary magazine and, and kind of tried out my hand at editing. And uh, that kind of led me into as a freshman in college, just kind of being interested in, okay, I've sort of, I've read some poems. Um, I don't know a lot about poetry necessarily. I know that there's a, a lot to be discovered. And um, my dad actually recommended um, that I take a course with a teacher named Kate Northrup who is the main poetry professor at Westchester University, where I was a freshman. And in my mind, I was kind of thinking like, okay, like college, like this is, these are like the big stakes. Like this is where I can find out if like the little things I've been working on are valid, you know? And and, um, I think I was just searching for an opportunity to kind of compare what I was doing with, with what other people understood poetry to be and, and be guided by a teacher who um, was recommended to me. And, and that class as a freshman really did a lot to, um, was a big catalyst for just my, my love of words and my love of close reading of poetry, which I really got, um, all from, from those in first courses with a professor at Westchester named Kate Northrup. Um, and through that experience, I met people like Luke Stromberg, um, who also went to Westchester and I kind of got involved with people who really took literature, uh, seriously. 
and so for me, you know, I, I think from there, I've just always seen poems as a way that um, you can work out. For, for me, it's almost like the best thinking that I'm capable of, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a sort of a phrase sometimes people use, like, best words in the best order as right. a sort of definition yeah. for poems. And um, for me, it's like it's a conversation I can have with my mind across across many weeks or, or even years as I'm, as I'm yeah. working out a draft of a poem. And... Um, the clarity of thought and and the, the meaning that I can find in um, placing words against each other and, and using verse uh, to communicate is, is just something that really intrigues me. And um, I'm interested in the way that, that we make meaning and, and take meaning away from, from words. And just, I love the idea that something that everybody has access to, like, in a sense, like, as elitist as poetry can be, like, what's more... Um, democratizing than that, Absolutely. you know, it's like we all have yeah. access to the English language, and it's yeah. really just sort of a skill of like best words, best order. You know, is is this worth reading? Can you convince right. people this is worth reading? And uh, I've just been, it's been proven to me time and time again that that is a worthwhile pursuit. And I guess that's kind of why I'm in it. Man, that's mm-hmm. that was yeah, that's great. Uh, I really love where you um, when you talk about accessibility there at the end, and I'm not talking about accessibility in the sense of you know, being able to understand poetry quickly, but accessibility and the fact that it, it really, if you have a library card <laughs> and a notebook yeah. and a pen, you can be a poet. That's always, I think that's, you know, I can talk a little bit later about, you know, sort of how I got into into it. And it's, you know, our stories are very similar, which is probably not surprising. But, uh, yeah, you know, and, and I mean, if you if you commit a poem to memory, you don't even need paper. You don't even need the book anymore. You can just... It's a part of you, and that's that's something I really love about it uh, myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Stromberg, uh, what's I'm interested in hearing your take because you you guys you know from roughly the you know you geographically you're a lot uh, closer together. Right, yeah. um, so uh, how's your story compare? Well, I mean, it's kind of similar. My family wasn't as uh, artistic <laughs> as as barrel lines, but. Uh, we were big readers. My older brothers were readers, and my dad were readers, and we read a lot in my house. And I, I just grew up with a a love of um, literature, and um, I don't know how like I got into writing exactly. I think it was more like my I have a twin brother, Matt, who is a, a priest in Schenectady now. And when we were kids, we both drew a lot. We were into comic books. I guess that's one of the things that really got me into reading. But we were into comic books, and we both liked drawing and, and creating stories. But like Matt was a little bit better at drawing than I was. So I decided I'd focus on writing. And I think that's how <laughs> I got into it. And that's the truth. Um, and, you know, I was a creative, imaginative child already, but... And when I was in elementary school, it's kind of like Bowerline. Like, I got praised for my writing. When I was in fifth grade, I won some kind of countywide award. Like, I represented not only my school, but the entire township. I won some award for some a story that I wrote. And that was, like, you know, uh, affirming, I guess. And I just, uh, I, I, I started to embrace writing more. I mean, it, I didn't really get into poetry until later. 
during middle school and high school and elementary school, I don't actually remember reading a lot of poems in, in school. I mean, I know we did, but when we did, you know, the teacher would kind of give us this poem and, you know, she would be like, okay, what does this make you feel? You know, and there, there would be some awkward conversation about it. And it was clear that, like, for the most part, you know, my teachers didn't seem to know how to talk about poetry. And they didn't seem to particularly like it too much. So, I mean, we didn't spend much time on it. I can remember, though, in, in high school, reading poems. I mean, we read a lot of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. I remember reading Wordsworth, uh, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, yeah. Emily Dickinson, Because I Could Not Stop for Death, and Langston Hughes' theme yeah. for English B. We read a lot of yeah. Whitman. I have a distinct memory of reading I Hear America Singing. We probably read Frost, but I don't have any distinct memory of it. I know I was aware of him. But, um, yeah, I didn't take any particular interest in poetry. It's not that I disliked it or anything. But I even remember taking a creative writing class. And, you know, the part of the class that was devoted to poetry, you know, I remember my teacher being like, yeah, you're not, you're a good writer. You're a great writer, but you're not really a poet. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, you know, and um, I didn't really question that at the time. But I think I got interested in poetry mainly through music. And mm -hmm. I got yeah. really into Bob Dylan, and I was really into yeah. John Lennon's lyrics and people like that. I'm sure you have the same kind yeah, of experiences. Yeah. So I think, like, getting into the song lyrics got me interested in poetry and you know i would hear dylan mention poets and in, in his songs or in interviews like i checked out the beats oh yeah and i kind of pretended to be into them for a <laughs> while though i was sort of <laughs> underwhelmed by them but i think that like this was probably in the senior year of high school or, or freshman year of college I started to check out poetry more seriously, and I think I could pinpoint it to an anthology that I bought at a flea market. Uh, the Mentor uh, Book of Major American Poets uh, by Oscar Williams. Oscar Williams and yeah. it had, yeah, it had like Poe and, and Longfellow and uh, Frost and E.E. E. Cummings, Archibald MacLeish. It had Auden in there. I don't know. I don't really think of Auden now as an American poet, but that's how he was originally presented to me, I guess, because he lived in America. <laughs> but I would, I read these, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I can get into this, yeah. right? And then I took a class at Delaware County Community College that I remember being like really influential. Um, it was an American literature class, but we read a lot of poems, and we read Frost, mm -hmm. and we read Edwin Arlington Robinson. And we read Carl Sandburg, who was like a big influence on me when I was mm. younger. Like I read, I was really into like hard-boiled writing, yeah, like yeah. Raymond Chandler and, and stuff like that. And I got really heavily into noir. And I think I recognized some of that like hard-boiled sensibility in Carl Sandburg. Like I read Chicago in that class. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, this guy is great. And reading about him and stuff, he was a folk singer and a socialist. He kind of reminded me of Woody Guthrie, wh who I was into. So I got into Carl Sandburg. But mainly, 
I think what really set me off in that class was we read Elliot, and we read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and we read The Wasteland. And, you know, I was already, like, really into talking about literature and stuff like that. That's already was a passion of mine. But I, I really saw that, like, oh, poetry is really interesting. And I think it was really Elliot. And so I was into poetry. And then when I transferred to, uh, to Westchester, I, I took that class that Bowerline mentioned with Kate Northrop. And she, yeah, she was a big influence as far as like exposing me to contemporary poetry. And, uh, you know, and we did a lot of close reading in that class, which helped, you know, sharpen my skills and get me interested in that. And I met other people, other poets mm -hmm. like Bowerline and, uh, you know, uh, other people and eventually I got involved in the Westchester Poetry Conference with Bowerline too, yeah. you know, so that just, it, it all kind of came from there. Yeah. But I, I mean, you know, why, I, I don't know. I guess I just liked it and, uh, I had fun doing it. And, yeah, um, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I think that that's, I wish I had like a more profound answer. To that. Yeah, well, no, but well, I, I think that that's, that probably sounds profound to a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people who are listening to this podcast initially, because uh, my guess is anyone listening to this already has an interest in poetry. Uh, but if you, <laughs> yeah. but you know, we, we hope to reach people who don't necessarily have that interest or just developing it. And I think to, I know like to most people out there, if you say I have fun doing it in regards to poetry, that is profound. They don't, yeah. you know, a lot of people don't get that. Uh, they they don't they can't conceive of it as being fun, um, yeah. or you know. But but I think that's what really draws uh, the majority of people to poetry, um, and it's definitely I think what keeps people into poetry. Um, yeah. it, because it, it really and as far as like you know as a as an art form and um, as a as a career, which is a really strange word to apply to. to poetry, yeah. But we're all I think three of us are trying to have some form of a career. Uh, there's no money in it. Uh, you find ways of, yeah. of, you know, allowing it to take money from you. So it better damn well be fun. <laughs> you yeah, better and be, I, I mean, yeah. Or, yeah, and I don't mean to like be so right. like, just like, it's fun. I like it. <laughs> right. I like, I guess I discovered that poetry, like I found it powerful. I, yeah. I was really yeah. Yeah. into the way that it communicated. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I saw a lot of, you know, I learned about myself. I learned about the world right. through poetry, and I, I saw it as a, as a, you know, um, as a powerful form of expression. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to learn how to do that. And I, you know, I, I'm a writer. I, I, I like to write poetry. But I think before anything, even I, I, I just love reading. It. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I like to talk about it. Yeah, the the I like you know you're talking about power there, and, and there's a um, I think that's one of the things that drew me to it because I uh, just sort of briefly go through my my story. Uh, I came to poetry through rock music. Um, hmm. Well, and I, it wasn't just poetry though; it was um, just literature in general and like the literary life because I was uh, I played guitar when I was in high school and uh, tried to write songs and. Um, a lot of the musicians that I listened to, a lot of them were pretentious 
hacks uh looking back <laughs> on it uh, but uh but they they did in their in their guitar world interviews you know talk about these writers that they love to pretend to read or maybe they did read them uh and some of these were you know beat writers uh like William S Burroughs and uh, Allen Ginsberg and and people like that and so uh, all of a sudden poetry which is just something I'd studied in school that I I remember enjoying but not it was sort of, you know, I, I enjoyed it the way I enjoyed studying history. It's, uh, right. you know, it was, it was something removed from my world. All of a sudden, it was, it was something very immediate. Um, and, and it was likened to uh, rock music, which I felt was a very powerful uh, mode of expression. I mean, it, it definitely, I don't know if it stirred up feelings within me or if it was just sort of corresponding to the the hormonal feelings that I was going through uh, when I was listening to it. But uh, rock was uh, very much a, a form of rebellion for me, um, you know, to, to listen to, to anything other than country or gospel in my family was, uh, it was cause for concern uh, <laughs> for uh, not as, you know, for my parents somewhat, but actually for my my older siblings, I think they were more worried than, than they were. But um, anyway, you know, growing up in sort of a, you know, uh, Southern Baptist household, it's, you know, rock music was sort of my outlet because I, I didn't feel like I fit in with with uh, the the culture that I was being brought up in completely. So, so getting into literature, you know, it was, I, I could see that the people who were influencing, the musicians who were influencing me, were not other musicians so much as they were writers in, in a lot of cases. And so so that's what drew me to it, I think. And, um, you know, you, you both uh, speak of, of uh, teachers. Um, you know, in high school, I had wonderful uh, English teachers. Um, I, I graduated high school with barely the ability to count to 10. Uh, my math instruction was terrible, but my English instruction was <laughs> world class, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I remember studying, uh, you know, the Cavalier poets, uh, Richard Lovelace. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. Um, I mean, we really dug deep in, in a lot of, in that, in those survey courses. Um, you know, there were some Sandberg and, and, uh, Whitman, of course. Um, you know, we could kind of go on and on about that, but I mean, it was really, yeah, I, and I might be misremembering this, but I want to even say there was like Philip Sidney. Um, okay. Yeah, Oof. there was some real. Uh, you know, we really dug deep, but it, but again, it was it was the more contemporary literature that really made it, brought it all to life uh, for me, and and made me think that maybe it was something that I I wanted to pursue myself, and um, I uh, so I, so I went to uh, Southeastern. You know, it's Southeastern Louisiana University. I'm originally from Louisiana, and I, I started taking classes with the poet Jack Bedell, uh, and he introduced me uh, to uh, the work of James Dickey, Wendell Berry, uh, these poets who were writing about uh, the Southern, you know, Southern experience. It was it was a lot closer to the experience I had had growing up, and I'd sort of lived vicariously through, you know, my, my relatives, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the different generations, uh, you know, I mean, like when I read James Dickey, you know, his World War II vet, well, I mean, I had relatives in my family who were World War II vets, so like, I, it kind of, you know, the, that sort of shared uh, past, you know, is something I have a connection with. Yeah, you know, and I mean, and, and Jack was just really great about introducing me to the world of contemporary poetry, and 
and, and he was very encouraging about my own work. You know, I was taking writing workshops with him, and um, uh, and and then through through those classes, I met uh, some peers who were um, as intensely interested as I was in, in all of this right. stuff. Uh, David Armand comes to mind. Uh, he's a um, he's a novelist. Uh, he's still still based in uh, Hammond, Louisiana, where we first met. And, um, you know, the friendships that I made at that time through these poetry workshops and these literature classes are, were, have become lifelong friendships. Yeah, uh, I think that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something I noticed as we were, you know, sort of talking about what, what got us into this this stuff you know is that uh at, at a certain you know we meet a teacher who's very important to us and usually in college and then and then we meet friends uh who are you know closer to us in, in age and experience who who we can we bond through yeah through this um the you know these language arts um and, yeah. And, and, yeah and i just meeting some like what bowerline and my other classmates at westchester i think that was really important because I was really into poetry, but like, you know, my brother liked it. Some of my <laughs> friends sort of liked, but they weren't really that into right. it. But it's, so it's important to have it reinforced and, the, and, the, and the, to meet some, you know, to, to be a part of a group that's as excited about it as you. I think that's really important. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and it kind of strikes me too. Like it's not everybody that reads great literature or or is struck by a song or you know blown away by a piece of art gets to the point where they this sort of like arrogance almost yeah. like, like hey <laughs> yeah. like yeah i think even if you don't think i could do that you think god like some people can do that yeah. and you're like can i do that like yeah. i do think there's like a, a progression there that maybe not yeah. everybody goes through but it, it's so um it's so important or just like it just feels um like that connect like that connection is so um is so strong when you meet somebody like that also has this sort of crazy idea that like, yeah, like if we just, if we just read what we're passionate about and, and sort of like unpack it, maybe we could figure out how to do that. Yeah. Like maybe that's possible. Yeah. And, and not everybody, it's like a smaller, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why we, we love it. You know, it's just like, there's something in us that, that draws us to that sort of challenge about it. I don't know, yeah. but yeah. I, I loved meeting other people like that. And if I hadn't, I, I probably would have, would have hung it up. In yeah, spite of the sort a, of feeling yeah. that I also have that like, it's something I would always at least dabble or try in, right? There's like something mm -hmm. that makes me want to push back against yeah. that. And say, hey, I want to try that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, I, I love that we've kind of come to this um, because I, I think that's the, that's the spirit in which we're we started this podcast here because I, I you know we we share this intense passion for talking about poems, uh, and you'll notice I say poems, not poetry. I, I like focusing on individual poems and and how they work <laughs> specifically, you know, and, and doing close yeah. readings. Um, and, and, you know, my faith is that this excitement is contagious, uh, and that it's, um, something that, you know, you hear people talk about it. It's just another topic of conversation. And, um, once you learn a little bit more about it, it, it becomes, um, I don't know, I, I feel it, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's addictive, you know, it's, it's something that, yeah. uh, it's, you know, you get a lot of enjoyment out of it. It, it, you know, it just sort of expands your, your point of view and, and your, um, your insights and everything. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing to, to continue to do. So, you know, I'm really happy. And there's something yeah. about like hearing and talking about a poem and like when somebody else has an idea about it and it sparks something in you and you're like, yeah. Oh, and then something clicks. 
I think that's what I real. I mean, that's probably why I majored in literature. Like yeah. I enjoyed that, that like that inspiration, that like click moment where you're like, oh, I think I get this, you know, or or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Well, um, you know, with with all that, with that passion uh, in mind, Kevin, would you be willing to uh, grace us with a reading of our our first poem that we're going to talk about? Yeah, be happy to. So the first poem we're talking about is The Kid by the poet Ai. Ai was uh, born in 1947 in Albany, Texas, passed away in 2010 in Stillwater, Oklahoma. She's well known for writing pretty much exclusively in the form of uh, the dramatic monologue, which is a very interesting thing to note about her craft. Not very many uh, poets choose a genre and, and just stick with it. The, you know, the predominant genre in the 20th century was the personal lyric. I think we could all could, we all could agree to that. Her first book was Cruelty, published by Hooten in Boston in 1973. That was followed by Killing Floor and Sin, then Fate, then Greed, and the title of her new and selected poems that came out in 1999 is Vice. Uh, and that's the volume that I'm reading this poem from today. It's exquisitely an excruciatingly beautiful book. And when I read the poem, you'll understand why I use the word excruciating. Because it's... Uh, I's poetry is not for the faint of heart. And I should probably give a trigger warning if you are <laughs> <laughs> in any way uh, squeamish about violence. Um, you know, you might want to fast forward through the reading of the poem. We're not going to be talking about, uh, this is not a poem about flowers. The Kid by I. My sister rubs the doll's face in mud, then climbs through the truck window. She ignores me as I walk around it, hitting the flat tires with an iron rod. The old man yells for me to help hitch the team but I keep walking around the truck, hitting harder, until my mother calls. I pick up a rock and throw it at the kitchen window, but it falls short. The old man's voice bounces off the air like a ball I can't lift my leg over. I stand beside him, waiting, but he doesn't look up, and I squeeze the rod, raise it. His skull splits open. Mother runs toward us. I stand still. Get her across the spine as she bends over him. I drop the rod and take the rifle from the house. Roses are red, violets are blue. One bullet for the black horse, two for the brown. They're down quick. I spit. My tongue's bloody. I've bitten it. I laugh. Remember the one out back. I catch her climbing from the truck. Shoot. The doll lands on the ground with her. I pick it up. Rock it in my arms. Yeah. I'm Jack. Hogarth's son. I'm nimble. I'm quick. In the house, I put on the old man's best suit and his patent leather shoes. I pack my mother's satin nightgown and my sister's doll in the suitcase. Then I go outside 
and cross the fields to the highway. I'm 14. I'm a wind from nowhere. I can break your heart. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess I'll just talk a little bit about why I wanted to discuss that poem. My primary motivation is that it's not at all what, what you expect a poem to be. I mean, even if you're used to, you know, read, maybe if you, if your idea of poetry is, is uh, the Iliad, where there's all this, you know, gore and, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but even then though. But at uh, least it was like, that was about, like, it seemed more rational. Like there was a reason why they were fighting the war. Like this just seems. Absolutely. Well, at, at least at first when I read it, just like, completely random acts of violence oh yeah yeah absolutely i mean i i I think it's a poem about a sociopath you know i I think this kid uh there doesn't seem to be much logic you know that he reveals like it it doesn't he doesn't really seem to allude to why he hates his family so much you know know, it almost seems uh, it almost seems motiveless yes yeah actually i didn't pick up on this so much the first couple times i read it um, but uh, particularly when you were reading it, it struck me. Something about it struck me. Now, there's a lot of aggression in this poem. Like, I mean, obviously, like he, he murders his family, right? But even before that, he's hitting like it's, he's just hitting the car, the tires of the car with his iron rod, yeah. and then he's throwing rocks at the kitchen window. But I think it's interesting, and I don't know how much we ultimately want to make of this, but I think it's interesting to point out the poem starts with an act of aggression, but it's not an act of an ag- aggression by the speaker. It's by his sister. And it's kind of a disorienting way to begin the poem, I think, because like, you know, why does the sister rub this doll's face in the mud? You know, like, yeah. we don't really know anything about these people. That's the first thing we get. Yeah, and my yeah. sister rubs the doll's face in the mud, then climbs through the truck window. She ignores me, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's yeah. interesting that when he he attacks the family, he says, "You know, and I remember the one out back, like the one out back." It's yeah. such a cold way to talk about your sister. Oh, yeah. But I catch her climbing from the truck. Truck, shoot! The doll lands on the ground with her. I pick it up rocket in my arms and it's just in the midst of like this horror this surprisingly tender moment and he takes the doll with him in the suitcase so it almost got me kind of reading into it like does he identify with this doll in some way like is this about like abuse i mean because he's i don't know what do you think yeah yeah i I definitely luke i definitely wanted to bring up (laughs) The, that image of, of his sister rubbing the doll's face on the mud. For, for one thing, too, I just want, it, it's, a, it's an extremely violent action to have the face erased, right? Like, mm, that's something yeah. that, that um, I've definitely heard talked about in, in murder investigations, right? It's a very hateful action. It's, it goes beyond simply killing somebody, right? Like, it's, it, oh, yeah. it's a very personalized yeah. way. You're really erasing the personality. You're completely destroying kind of all remnant of... of, of it's just total erasure, right? And so I think we have to we have to look at that as a as a violent act. Or I think I wants us to see it that way. 
one of the things I was just going to mention, one of the things that makes it so arresting and kind of seem motive, motiveless and random is it's, it's using a very contemporary poetic technique of just starting us right in the middle of a scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's yeah. kind of up to us to feel, and that's disorienting at first, but as we have time to kind of unpack it and revisit it, like you just did now, Luke, you can kind of see, there are hints of, of a larger narrative here. And I am interested to kind of get your and Kevin's thoughts about what you, you think of that might be hinting at, but it does seem like it, it goes beyond simply, you know, this kid's ignored and he's sort of like an outsider. I mean, obviously there's a sociopathic tendencies in there, but there seems some kind of like he has been abused or, or it's, it seems to be speaking to a hierarchy in this family and, yeah. and he is here to disrupt that totally. Yeah. 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 Like th- that at the end of that first dance, which I think is, an, I mean, I still kind of, I'm not sure what to make of it exactly. Those last two lines. Yeah. The old man's voice bounces off the air like a ball. I can't lift my leg over. That's an odd, it's an odd, it's an odd image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, and you know, I don't even think uh, I really got that image until I read it just now that, I mean, it's a, uh, so it, you know, it bounces off the air like a ball. I mean, that, that all, uh, that's a complete image in and of itself because it's okay. You know, it's, yeah. it's you know, the voice is echoing or reverberating. Uh, the speaker then says, I can't lift my leg over, you know? So, so this is a ball that could crush him. It's that big, yeah. you know? You know, it, it's that magnitude of, of the voice. Uh, and it, it kind of, it calls to mind uh, the poem, uh, Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. The, the subtext that's, that's in, in that poem. Where, which poem by Robert Hayden? Um, Those Winter Sundays. Okay, yeah. And, you know, the, uh, fearing the, the angers of that house, I, I think uh-huh. is a line from that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing from, from yes, bad yes, memory. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's sort of like with just that little hint, you, you get a dimension of, of the scene that he's painting. And, and I think that when we hear the, the father's voice, he, he's either yelling. Well, no, I mean, the only time we, we encounter the father's voice yeah. is him yelling uh, for the kid to um, help hitch the team of uh, animals. You know, and again, in and of itself, I mean, well, you know, a lot of, um, you know, farmers, uh, they, they're just, right. they're kind of rough. You know, it doesn't. I mean, necessar- yeah, my yeah. my parents yelled at me like ceaselessly when right. I was young. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't want to kill them yeah. know, by any means, you know. Yeah, I, and I certainly don't think I was abused. Right. Yeah, but I, I definitely think that the the that last image. Yeah. The fact that and, and whether or not there's any, you know, justification from from an outsider's view, we, we definitely see from from the speaker's point of view. Right. Just how how big this voice is, and how how you know massive the presence of his father is, and, and hateful it is. Even though we don't really see all the details as to why. Yeah, like we don't. We don't <laughs> exactly. We it's just a hint of that. We don't really get the backstory. It's it's all just very subtly implied. Yeah, and I um, I think that that. Is what makes it such a chilling poem, uh, don't you? Yes. Yeah. yeah oh, I agree. Absolutely agree. Yeah. 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 The the point is not to give us the answers; is to leave us bewildered, and uh, and, and it's such yeah. an extreme reaction. Too. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you, know, I, I I also wondered. Um, it kind of goes along with what we're saying too. Like, if this is a poem, in a sense. 
It's called The Kid. You know, it's a family scene. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it, in not a traditional sense, but it's a family scene. And then he, he makes a point of saying, I'm 14, right? Um, yeah, I'm 14 at the end. If this is a poem about, in some sense, puberty. Now, I mean, of course, it is a like a horrific, exaggerated depiction of puberty, but I can't shake that thought. I mean, 14 and 13, uh, those are the worst ages. I mean, I you know, particularly for me when I was 13, that was like the most awkward, miserable time of my life yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, um, you know, you just feel out of place. You just feel miserable and confused. And a, a lot of teenagers, particularly those kids around that age, feel that way. Um, and they can be awkward, but they can be sullen, overly emotional, erratic. And we kind of get that in this poem. And there's that sort of rebelliousness, like taken to the extreme, like this resentment of the parents and and the sister. Um, and it seems like kind of like a, a, in a way, a monster image of puberty. I mean, would, did anybody else get that at all from this? Yeah, I mean, I'll let them. I have some things to say about that, but I want to hear from Kevin first, and then, what, what, yeah, what did you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I well, my reaction at that last line when he says I'm 14, it it makes him scarier to me. Oh uh, yes, you know sure. because you're like, you know, you want to think that a 14 year old still retains uh, some of the innocence of of childhood, and and maybe that is true in in many cases. Um, you know, just the fact well, that the, he's so young, you know. Yeah. You know. What's creepy about it, too, is that in a way he does retain some of the innocence of childhood. Absolutely. Yeah, with Absolutely. He takes, cradling he, the doll. Puts, yeah. Yeah. He's like putting the sister's doll in the suitcase to take with him. There's these weird, like, nursery rhymes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, um, I get roses, and, uh, roses are red, violets are blue. It's not really... I don't know if that would count as a nursery rhyme, but it certainly somehow for me evokes childhood. Oh, absolutely. Makes it like a game. Mm -hmm. Roses are red, violets are blue, one bullet for the black horse, two for the brown. And then there's the, you know, um, I'm nimble, I'm quick, quick, which makes me think Jack nimble, Jack be quick. So it's almost like evoking childhood and maybe just to evoke it to show that adolescence can be like a, a scary, confusing transition, and you go from being this innocent little kid to a mess of hormones, you know, mm-hmm. just like that. Or, you know, something more monstrous. So, I, I don't know. I guess I was seeing some of that in it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with, uh, with both those assessments. Uh, what I think about, too, is it, it's not, I think it has to be read, like everything we're sort of talking about, about adolescence and and transitioning into sort of that, that awkward teen adulthood has to be put in the context of like, this kid definitely is a, is a sociopath. Right. Oh, and, yeah. and, but, but kids can be sociopaths. So one thing I think she's doing, right. Like she's, the, the title is important because it's, it, it's setting you up for, it's almost like she's teaching you this really, really harsh lesson about, Hey, like, this is what you thought this person was, this developing person who, ha- who yes, is a sociopath, but still has sort of these residual echoes of, 
of play in childhood. When I when I read that line about the old man's voice, you know, like a ball I can't lift my leg over, I'm I'm thinking of like wall ball or kickball or uh-huh. or dodgeball or, or something like it's like a childhood game and he's relating he's still relating to the world in that way. And he is ignored to the point where and he, and so kind of seen as this innocuous presence, right, in their lives that the moment before he murders his father, his father isn't even looking up at the rod. He waits. What is he waiting for? I think he's waiting for his father to realize, like, I'm a force to be reckoned with. I'm about to uh-huh. kill you. And he, he doesn't even get that. You know what I mean? Yeah. He gets it from his mom because the thing has already been set in motion. And I'm, I'm noticing that this was published in 1999. So obviously it was written before Columbine happened. There were previous shootings that had happened around them. But I mean, it, it almost sounds like it could be from the mind of like a developing Eric Harris. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, and uh, actually, well, actually, this, yeah, um, yeah the, it, it was originally published in her collection, Killing Floor, from 1979. Oh, okay, so it's yeah. way, it's much, much older. Okay, yeah. thank you, thank you. She might have written uh, some poems about Columbine. I don't think it's in, it would, I don't think it would be in this um, selected poems, but she, you know, later in her career, uh, she would write, you know, she has a poem, a dramatic monologue uh, from the point of view of uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, I believe there's one or two um where she writes as Marilyn Monroe. That oh, sounds really cool. Oh yeah, it's you know, and then and then there's some other ones where because uh, her early poems like this one are they're these uh, rural characters um, who are just these anonymous people you know dealing with violence and poverty and then some of her later work it, it's ripped from the headlines to take a terrible cliche out but it's just <laughs> you know it it really you know you get a sense that she she just read newspapers and found something really interesting and then would. Uh, base a monologue off of it and just does incredible work with it. Um, Which is what, yeah. like, some of the old protest singers, like in the, the Greenwich Village days, like yeah. Bob Dylan wrote uh, The Lonesome and Death of Hattie Carroll. He just read a newspaper article and he was like, you know, let me write a song about this. Right. It's interesting. You know, I believe that, you know, the Beatles did that. I mean, you know, all, you know, it's a wonderful exercise or. or you know, I don't. Maybe you would call it a subgenre in a way. Maybe it's not quite yeah. that. But uh, you know, and, and to this, you know, now we have websites uh, like New Verse News, and I think Rattle, right? You know, right. is, is uh, publishing poems based on the news. So, but yeah, and, and getting back to well, um, you know, I, I did have know. a question that I wanted to ask both of you too, if that's all right. Um, I, I've sort of been thinking of this. I, I'm not sure this totally holds up, but I've, I've been thinking about uh, the kid and the fact that this ends with him putting on his father's clothes and, and hitting the road. And it, it almost feels like an origin story for the misfit oh. in A Good Man is Hard to Find. Oh, that's, oh, that's, that's awesome. And, and one of the, the things that I think, and I kind of revisited that story a little bit just to kind of get back in and see, and see if it would hold up and this is almost more frightening than what Flannery O'Connor presents us in that, because you know, in, in that universe, even if it's if it's a, a difficult God to understand and, and sort of the a very hard understanding of faith, you know, you, you either have it completely or, or or not at all. You know, she she's using the misfit as sort of this this teacher character, right? That's that's delivering this lesson of of yeah, sort of yeah. what it is to have faith, you know, and and right. you see in that story the grandmother sort of at the end of of her rope kind of had this realization that. You know, or you're you could be one of my children, right? You right, could you yeah, could be uh-huh, you yeah. could have been this kid, and and in in this universe though, because of of I's technique of of setting it sort of right in that snapshot moment, and there's not a lot of context for it, and you're clearly dealing with a sociopath here. 
it, it's there isn't really that there's not really salvation or it, it really feels like a sort of godless modernist universe that this takes place in and and yet there's still kind of a that same lesson at least towards the reader right sort of undermining our expectations of what a kid is what a kid is capable of and right, yeah. and what we're sort of raising and bringing into the world you know yeah, I, and, I'm and, think of that yeah, yeah um, something that came to mind uh, and I, I love that you brought up that uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, story you know one one thing it called to mind was the the song uh, John Wayne Gacy Jr. by Sufjan Stevens oh um, yeah and you know in uh, you know on in my best behavior I'm really just like him. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. when, when that song came out and when I heard that, I, 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 it resonated so much with me because, you know, I was raised in this uh, pretty fundamentalist um, church. Uh, it wasn't as, as uh, crazy as like the Westboro guys, but, you know, it was, it was pretty <laughs> right. hardcore Southern Baptist church. And, you know, I mean, they, they didn't dick around. And, um, you know, and, and one thing that's always stuck with me, and I still think that there's some grain of truth in it, even though I'm far from that world now, is that, the idea that we're all born in sin and the idea that everybody's a sinner, not just, you know, the killers and, and the rapists and the thieves and all that, but everybody, like we're all, we're all fallen. And, um, and I, I feel like this poem is kind of, uh, I, with any dramatic monologue, there is a, a tension between your knowledge that the poet uh, is writing a poem as another person and there's that tension between the speaker and the poet and your knowledge of who the poet is which you know i'm not saying you have to know much of anything at all about their biography but there there's still that understanding that this is a mask i'm wearing um you know it's a persona and you know the word persona uh means uh, mask and so Ooh. what what it's uh, and what i love about it, uh, i and like all of her work is that she's putting on all these various masks. And a lot of times she's, she's exercising empathy for these really terrifying people who, who do these, just commit these disturbing acts of violence. And it's kind of, in a way, it seems to me that she's inviting us to also exercise that empathy and also to realize, yes, there is, there's something like that in me as well. There's that potential. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, which is probably the most terrifying thing about the this poem and any poem like it, uh, you know that that getting you to recognize you know the evil that's in you, if if you want to use the word like evil. Alicia Ostricker had said that you know the speakers of her poems count for nothing more than that of a slaughtered goat, where desire is like the smell of fresh meat. Each is savage, each is victim. Their cruelty is theirs because it is nature's. I think that kind of that hits it on the head. I mean, it's really she's she's getting down to nature, and you know, and, and people tend to. Uh, I know for me, like I, it, I have to be reminded that you know I'm an animal. I'm not this you know lofty, uh, <laughs> you know, intellectual, you know, purely intellectual being. You know, and um, and you know, and it's poems like this that kind of remind me. Uh, yeah, I mean, like we're all we're all pretty savage, but we're all also victims. You know. Well, that's all we have for this week's episode. Thank you for listening to Work Cited. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to read more poems by I.E., be sure to check out her collected poems published in 2013 by Norton, and be sure to check out our website, WorksCitedPodcast.com 
for more information about this poem and other links of interest. And now, here to play us out is Philadelphia's own The Late Greats. Party's